Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. I want to do a deep dive into psychology here and talk about how it's connected to politics. So the psychology of relationships to start out with. Back in the 1980s, a woman named Diane Vaughn did some uh, just absolutely extraordinary research into how people form and dissolve relationships. I'm talking about intimate relationships, romantic or you know marriage kinds of things. And what she found was that setting aside the how people get together in the first place, which is a whole another interesting thing, looking at the way that people break up, the way this typically works is that you've got two people who are in a committed relationship, in a long-term intimate relationship. And one of them, let's call that person the offender, although there's a, a negative image associated with that, but I don't have a better word right now. The offender will do something or engage in a behavior that the other partner says, this is a deal breaker for me. I can't put up with this kind of behavior on an ongoing basis. And so they say that. Now, they typically don't say it quite that loudly or quite that explicitly, but they basically, it's called the cry, not as in sobbing, but as in town crier, right? It's the announcement that if you don't change this behavior, I'm out of here. Or please stop this behavior. That would be kind of a midpoint. Okay, so that, that cry is uttered. And then for relationships that end up dissolving, typically what happens is the other partner hears what was said, but doesn't understand it. They don't actually hear it, hear it. They don't realize how important it is. They may think that it's just a minor complaint or, hey, you know, I've been like that all my life or whatever. You know, they're just going to have to learn to live with it. And they just dismiss it and go on thinking everything's great. And then what happens is the person who said, but wait a minute, I can't deal with this behavior. That person will then start looking for other behaviors that the offending party does. And they'll start coming up with a list of you know how terrible all these behaviors are in aggregate and eventually they'll reach the point where in their own minds the reasons to leave outweigh the reasons to stay 
So that's stage one. Stage two is typically they then go to a, somebody in their circle, typically a friend or a confidant, and will express their concern. Right? And if that person then affirms their thoughts, says, yeah, you're justified to want to leave over that, then they go to the next stage, which is where in their mind they start uncoupling, which is the title of Diane Vaughn's book. They uncouple from the other person. And they go through all the stages, you know, Kubler-Ross's stages. They've already been through basically, you know, bargaining and start out with denial and you go to bargaining. And then, you know, they kind of in their heads say, okay, I'm out of here. I'm going to dissolve this relationship. And then they go through grieving. And then finally, when they're all done with the process and they've come to peace with it, okay, I'm out of here. That's when they announce it to the other partner. I want a divorce or I want to break up or I want to move out or whatever it may be. And the other partner is completely blindsided because they haven't gone through this process. And the other partner's like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why do you want to? And well, I told you a year ago that, that, you know, that's a deal breaker for me. But I didn't know, you know. And so then the other person tries to do bargaining and goes through anger and denial and not necessarily in that order, but and ultimately grieving themselves. And we've all, probably most of us have been in this situation of being dumped and not knowing why or being the dumpy or the dumper. I know I've been on, you know, back when I was a teenager, I was on both sides of that equation and I never really understood it. So that's how it works. Now, this applies just as well to politics. And looking specifically at the Democratic Party, in the 1930s, Americans fell in love with the Democratic Party. Franklin Roosevelt was reelected, was elected president four times. He was reelected three times. He was, he laid out, you know, programs that even by today's standards would be considered radical. You know, hiring millions of Americans and putting them to work, planting trees and things simply to give them work. You know, the WPA and the CCC. You know, he created social security from scratch. You know, we're going to give everybody in America who's over 65 a pension for the rest of their lives. The Republicans went nuts about this stuff. So, oh, this is socialism. But the American people loved it. And they continued to love the Democratic Party. I mean, for that reason, outside of two outlier congressional elections, one in 1947, and I think the other one was in the 1970s, but outside of those two two-year periods, from 1933 to 1995, the House of Representatives, with the exception of those two breaks, was continuously in the hands of the Democrats. Because the American people were so in love with the Democratic Party and the principles that it stood for. Until 1994. Now, what changed in 1994? In 1994, basically, the Republicans took over. It was the second year of the Clinton administration. And I would argue that the cry unheard came from Democrats in the election of 1992. And it had to do with trade and a few other things, but principally trade. Now, backtrack a little bit. In the 1970s, I lived in Michigan in the 1970s. Louise and I moved to New Hampshire and I think it was 1978. And so for the first eight years of the 70s, and I grew up in Michigan, of course, and Richard Nixon signed or actually introduced legislation in 1973 that would give the president fast track authority, the ability to basically ne negotiate trade deals and put them into effect really basically on his own, pre-clearance by Congress. He proposed that in 73, in November of 73, that legislation was introduced into Congress. And in 74, after Nixon left office, I think it was October or November of 74, Jerry Ford signed it. 
And what came out of that was that in the mid-70s, we started seeing all these cheap Japanese cars, Nissan and Toyota, Honda. Back then, they were subsidized by the Japanese government. Their exports were, and they were just basically exporting really, really cheap cars into the United States and competing, openly competing. They didn't have any factories in America, openly competing with American car companies. And if you bought one of those cars and drove it, I had, a, I had one for a while. I, I don't recall what it was. The Datsun sticks in my head, but uh, that I bought for $35, right, when I was younger in Michigan. And if you parked in the mall, you knew that when you came back out, your car was going to be keyed. I mean, that car was just covered with scratches because this was a town where General Motors was based, where we made cars. People were really upset with these Republican trade policies that Richard Nixon started with that trade law in 74 that allowed the president to do fast track authority. And in 1980, when Reagan was elected, Reagan wasn't talking about this. This was not that big an issue outside of the industrial Midwest, I would say. But it became a big issue throughout the 80s. I mean, in the late 70s, Walmart was a regional company. They, they were operating in five states, and their slogan was Made in America. In fact, that's the title of Sam Walton's autobiography. But by the mid-1980s, just a decade later, during the Reagan administration, you couldn't find anything made in the United States in Walmarts anymore. They, they just made this giant shift because, you know, Reagan's trade policies. And then Reagan started negotiating NAFTA to move factories to Mexico. And this was all a naked effort by the Republicans to destroy unions in the United States because unions funded Democratic candidates. So Reagan negotiates NAFTA. He leaves office and Bush the elder comes in and the elder Bush uh, finalizes the negotiations for NAFTA and gets the legislation through Congress. And then there's this big debate in the 1992 election cycle where, you know, it's George Herbert Walker Bush versus Bill Clinton. And both of them are saying, yeah, we like NAFTA. But the American people are saying, no, we don't like NAFTA. We don't want any more of these trade agreements. We want, to say, we want to see Walmart going back to selling stuff made in America. And we don't want Japanese cars on our streets, basically. And Ross Perot channeled that. He got 19% of the vote. One in five Americans who voted for president in the election of 1992 voted to leave both parties. That's mind-boggling. One in five Americans voted for an eccentric billionaire from Texas that nobody had ever heard of before who had big ears and these giant charts and talked in a high squeaky voice and whose vice presidential candidate, Admiral Stockdale, said, who am I? What am I doing here? I mean, you know, I, and I realize it was a rhetorical question, but nonetheless, you know, who would have thought, right? Well, what had happened was in 1992, that was the cry unheard. That was the American people saying, we don't want these trade deals. This is a deal breaker for us. We'll leave the party over these. And both the Republican and Democratic Party said, tough luck. We get a lot of money from these big corporations, and we also want to destroy the unions, or at least the Republicans wanted to destroy the unions. And so Clinton not only went along with the trade deal, he signed NAFTA. He doubled down on this, which leads to the 2000 election. Al Gore was saying, and I, I'm literally was saying, Having NAFTA, having moving American auto factories down to Mexico will be a good thing for Americans because it'll discourage illegal immigration into the United States. Al Gore, honest to God, said that. That was his argument. If, if you make good jobs in Mexico, you're not going to have as much poverty in Mexico and those people won't be coming into the United States. Whereas the automaker, you know, people working in the factories in Michigan were like, what? 
And so Al Gore lost the election, not just because of that, but that, that was certainly one of the things that contributed to it. And George W. Bush came in. And we've had basically Republican control or a l really large, uh, you know, Republican presence now ever since the Clinton presidency, because basically Clinton signed NAFTA. And so Trump comes along and goes, I'm a Democrat pre-92. I mean, he'd been a Democrat before 92. And he says, I'm going to blow up these trade deals. We're going to renegotiate NAFTA. We're going, to, we're going to change this stuff. And across the industrial Midwest, people said, finally, a politician, because both the Republicans and the Democrats are both still doubling and tripling down on these trade deals. Barack Obama was negotiating the Trans-Pacific Partnership and pushing it really, really hard. And Hillary Clinton was all in on that, and so, at least initially. And so Trump comes along and says, no, no TPP, no trade deals. And the American people are like, okay, we'll have an affair with this guy. You see how it all fits together? It's, it's pretty remarkable. We've all heard of Casper. You know, the sleep company with outrageously comfortable products at not so outrageous prices. From award-winning mattresses to pillows, sheets, and duvets, Casper transforms the way we sleep one snooze at a time. Haven't tried them yet? Well, then it's time to treat yourself to better sleep during their extended Black Friday Cyber Monday sale. The Casper mattress is an award-winning balance of comfort and support. Louise and I love our Casper mattress. Four layers of premium foam are designed to provide pressure relief for all-night comfort. The zone support system keeps your back aligned and cradles you with extra support. Casper is the perfect place to get all your holiday shopping done because, let's be honest, everybody sleeps. And as always, Casper has free shipping and free returns. Plus, every Casper mattress comes with a 100-night risk-free trial. Treat yourself with 10% off any purchase with a mattress today at Casper.com and use the code MONDAYS. That's Casper.com code MONDAYS to get 10% off any purchase with a mattress today. Terms and conditions apply. See Casper.com terms. George in Portland. Hey, George, what's on your mind today? I feel like a lot of times when people on the left say, you know, Democrats and Republicans are becoming all the same, even without naming neoliberalism, I'm pretty sure that's the general sense that they were getting with yes. Clinton and, and even Obama, as you said. They both support um, free trade and, deals, yeah. Uh, or actually, they're I corporate feel, trade deals. Yeah. And I'm feeling that Bernie Sanders is the one that sort of shifted that paradigm by... yes. Again, maybe not calling them out specifically like, you, you know, you did on the air a little bit ago, but um, waking a lot of people up to that and having people think about it and research it and understand it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And the next question is, how do we fight it? I mean, do we really believe that Buttigieg, uh, Kamala Harris really are the, the right type of people to help us fight it, help us get rid of it? Yeah. The one thing that I know about politicians, generally speaking, is that they want to be with the rest of the parade. They want to be where everybody else is. Now, that, you know, I, I, you could arguably say that was the case in American politics for the first 200 years of our existence, but over the last 40 years, that has changed. When the Supreme Court legalized bribery of politicians in 76 and 78 with the Buckley and First National Bank decisions, and then doubled down on it with Citizens United, and then more recently with McDonald, you know, uh, the Virginia governor, who took over $100,000 in bribes from a guy who owned a uh, over-the-counter drug company. It wasn't prescription drugs. There was stuff you could buy in a drug
drugs, you know, over the counter health food stores and things. The governor actually endorsed this for this guy in a TV ad and took like, you know, $100,000 in bribes for it and was convicted. You know, Bob McDonald was convicted in the Virginia court system, and he appealed to, all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, no, no, that's fine. You can bribe politicians. So now you've got some politicians, virtually all of the Republicans, who are willing, and, 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 and probably about half the Democratic Party, who are willing to defy or ignore the desires of the majority of, of the people that they represent, their constituents, and because they know that the tune that they really have to dance to is the tune of their donors. And that's just not a good thing. It's just not a good thing. Will in Broomfield, Colorado says, you want to disagree with me. How so? Uh, write this down, Tom, because I agree with you on virtually everything, but you've been talking about um, the uh, the grief model, about Democrats and their candidates, and it's a, it's a logical model, it makes sense, but there's one great big flaw in it, which you yourself have brought up in the past, about the whole way it's set up. Okay. Republicans cheat. Republicans cheat. Uh-huh. And so when we talk about, oh, we have a bad candidate, well, we don't have a bad candidate. Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by 3 million votes. John Kerry was a strong candidate. They both had great credentials. They were dealing with opposition candidates who kept screaming at them, have you stopped beating your wife? You yourself have said the Republicans haven't legitimately won a presidential election. Since Dwight Eisenhower. Yeah. Since 1956. And so the whole notion of, oh, we're dealing with grief of a bad candidate, you're not taking into account, or at least not publicly taking into account, the fact mm. that Grandpa was poisoned by Uncle Joe in the MAGA hat. Yes, and and that, and that affects you know that you know I. Yeah, your point is well taken, that. Will. I can't disagree with it. I guess my point, my counterpoint to that would be that if you look at the huge majorities by which FDR won, and substantial majorities that LBJ won when he ran for re-election in 64, and the Democrats basically held the House of Representatives from 1933 to 1995, that had the Democratic Party not gone neoliberal in 92, I think the majority, you know, if we just got an extra 1%, you would never have had George Bush in the president. And, you know, we, it wouldn't have gotten close enough for him to steal. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Amazing. Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana was uh, lying about Trump on the, over the weekend, and Trump is now tweeting thanks to him. Incredible. Tom Hartman here. Check out my new weekly podcast, The Science Revolution. On this week's podcast, ADHD, are you a hunter in a farmer's world? Look out! Dr. Bon Strauss is here on the rising sea levels and those in the path, and there's more. You can find it now wherever fine podcasts are available, and it's free. More info at TomHartman.com or over on our Facebook page. Tom Hartman here with you, and uh, just to catch up on a few other things, our new science podcast is out. It's called Science Revolution with Tom Hartman. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts, and I think you'll like it. We do one a week. Google and YouTube, and uh, well, YouTube is owned by Google, so I guess this is all Google. But Google and YouTube have pulled hundreds of Donald Trump re-election ads off their platforms because they're filled with lies. 
Facebook, on the other hand, and Mark Zuckerberg is still defending this, Facebook is saying, mm, we'll run those ads, no problem. Ads by Donald Trump that say that Joe Biden was trying to fire a prosecutor in Ukraine because his son was working for this corrupt oil company. That was not the case. In fact, that's the exact opposite of actually what happened. But, uh, you know, Zuckerberg says, eh, no problem. Brazil and Argentina, Trump is talking about raising steel tariffs to both these countries. Apparently, he's uh, unhappy that they're selling soybeans and other agricultural products to China because China is, you know, I mean, it's just it's this whole mess, you know, that Trump has created by doing tariffs, by doing trade policy by fiat, you know, by executive order instead of by legislative effect. And I think this experience of being dumped and not seeing it coming is universal. I'm arguing that the Democratic Party needs to look back and say, why did we start losing elections after the 92 election? The last six presidents, only two of them have been Democrats. When Democratic policies, I mean, yeah, Dwight Eisenhower was a Republican in the middle of a string of Democratic presidents, but he wrote that famous letter to his brother Edgar where he said, any politician, any political party that supports ending Social Security and destroying unions will never be heard from again. You know, Eisenhower actually continued the New Deal and expanded it in some ways and bragged about it in his reelection in 1956. The core of his reelection ads was that he had expanded the number of people who were eligible for Social Security and he had increased Social Security benefits. So the cry of American people has been tax the rich and strengthen the social safety net. And what happened? Well, Bill Clinton came along and said, we're going to cut the social safety net. We're going to dial back on the Great Society that cut poverty in half in 10 years. We're going to do away with many of those programs. We're going to means test things. We're going we're to put a limit of a certain number of three, three to five years that you can be on any kind of welfare program, period. And after that, you've got to prove you're trying to get a job or that you have a job. And the fact of the matter is, when Clinton did that, the economy was really roaring along. I mean, that was the back end of the dot-com bubble. But it was a bubble. And it burst in 2000, and suddenly there were people who actually needed help and couldn't get it because Clinton had cut the programs. And Clinton, like I said, doubled down on trade. People have been protesting, Democrats have been protesting against these neoliberal policies. Clinton basically picked up Reagan's policies and said, we're going to keep doing what Reagan was doing, only with the smiley face. And so did President Obama, for that matter. We've had two Democratic presidents in, in all these years, in these last 40 years, and neither one of them said, wait a minute, we're going to repudiate Reaganism. We're going to go back to the economic system that we had under the New Deal and the Great Society from 1933 to 1980. We're going to go back to those policies. Democrats, Democrats are not saying that until now, in this election cycle. And we have, you know, a whole spectrum of candidates, even the so-called moderate candidates like Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg. You know, I, I disagree with them on some of their policy prescriptions. I think that they don't go far enough, but, but they're way more progressive than what we were hearing just four years ago out of the Clinton campaign. I mean, this is, this is like good, healthy stuff that's happening in our party. But I think that the party needs to realize that they didn't hear the cry of the American voters back in the late 70s and the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s and the 2010s. They didn't hear, the Democratic Party didn't hear that cry. Uh, apparently until Hillary Clinton lost in 2016 to an orange buffoon 
who brags about grabbing women by the private parts and 70,000 families he's torn apart and thrown their children into cages since he became president. I mean, that's pretty mind-boggling when you think about it, right? That's very mind-boggling. Dave in Columbus, Ohio. Hey, Dave. I'm curious what you think of, as a psychologist, I'm curious what you think of my taking Diane Vaughn's uncoupling theory and model and applying it to politics. I don't know what that model is. Tell me, and I'll, I'll do it. Oh, it's it's that in a in an intimate relationship, when typically when when a relationship dissolves or starts breaking down very quickly, one partner yeah. announces that they're leaving, and the other partner is blindsided. And the partner who announces that they're leaving has actually gone through a definable, predictable process. They they issued a cry. They said, "Wait a minute, I'm I, I'm unhappy in this relationship because of this particular behavior on your part." That cry was not heard by the other part. They just thought, oh, it's, it's not a big deal, and they continued doing it. Then the start, person starts gunny sacking all these, you know, uh, other grievances, and and then they, in their minds, start separating from the other partner, and then and they go through all of Kubler Ross's stages, basically, all the way to you know acceptance. And once they finally accepted that they're going to leave the relationship, then they announce it to the other partner, who feels totally blindsided by it. And so I took that model, and this is what I think is happening inside the Democratic Party that when Bill Clinton embraced Ronald Reagan and George Bush's NAFTA and free trade policies and cutting welfare and rolling back from both the New Deal and the Great Society, that Americans, American voters said, no, it's not what we want. And that was the cry unheard. And the proof of that was that Ross Perot got one in five votes in that election, which is mind boggling. And the Democratic Party is only just now starting to hear that cry. What do you think, Dave? Absolutely, because they, as you already said before, they, they sort of get isolated. And then once they accept a certain type of position, then they, they, it's very difficult to go back. And right. then you have essentially like a social psychology viewpoint of groupthink, and it's so hard to turn back, you know, as a politician. Right. Who's going to turn against the group? So you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the solution yeah. to this is for the for the Democratic Party, it, just like, you know, if 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 you're the partner who just got dumped, you know, it is possible to repair relationships. But the first step in that repairing is is saying, OK, I heard your cry. I heard your complaint and I will do something about it. And, and then the second step is remembering why you fell in love in the first place. You know, let's revisit what first connected us together. In the case of politics, I would say what the Democratic Party has to say explicitly or and I think many Many of its politicians are starting to is we're going to go back to the values of Franklin Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson, at least his domestic values, and all the Democrats in between. We're going to go back to those values rather than we're going to stay with the Reaganistic values that were adopted by the Democratic Party in '92 because of Al Fromm and Bill Clinton starting the DLC. Makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And and the one thing that makes it difficult, as you used the analogy about one partner, um, essentially distance itself from the other is you make all kinds of assumptions why this person is no good. Right. And it's very difficult to change those thoughts. Yes. And yeah. you need essentially a kick in a butt, and that'd be from the voters to say, look, we don't want you to go here anymore. Yeah. And I think that happened yeah, in 2016. I, I think that happened exactly. in 2016. Dave, thanks a lot for the call. Great to hear from you. And great to have a, uh, you know, as I'm riffing about psychology, to have a psychologist to bounce it off of. The holiday season is upon us. It's that time of year again. Family, friends, and everything so conveniently documented in video and photography, capturing every laugh, every smile, and every under-eye bag. 
What was that last part? Under eye bags, wrinkles, crow's feet? Yes, those telltale signs of aging. Who wants those in their holiday cards? Now, imagine they're gone. I'm not talking about some risky, expensive surgery, just gone in minutes. It's called Plexiderm, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags in minutes. It's exactly what you need to get through the holiday season and beyond. Don't believe it? I didn't either until I tried it. Now I don't have to imagine anymore. I look just like me, but younger. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you'll need to face that judgmental family member. We all have one. Best part is Plexiderm goes on clear so nobody will know you're using it, unless you tell them. Get Plexiderm's holiday promotion. Go to Plexiderm.com and use my code Hartman with two N's for 50% off plus an additional 10 bucks off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-741-7998. That's 1-800-741-7998. Again, that's 1-800-741-7998. Or visit Plexiderm.com today and use the code Hartman at checkout. Rob in Waconia, Minnesota. Am I saying it right, Rob? Waconia, Minnesota, yeah. Waconia, okay. Hey, what's up? You know how Trump says the economy is doing so great and everything. Right. Well, if it's doing so great, why are we going from a 2.8% cost of living adjustment last year on Social Security to a 1.6% COLA this year? Hmm. Almost cutting it in half. Yeah. But, but this is but something, you know, doing great during the 11 years that Bernie was doing brunch with Bernie on this program. This is something that he brought up probably once a month all, every year. And that is that the cost of living adjustments, the colas that are on Social Security are based on more general inflation index that includes things like as computers get cheaper, as computer technology advances, computers increase their power, reduce their costs, TVs increase their power, reduce their costs as so many of these things get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper that deflation is factored into the cost of living that is used to calculate for Social Security. But they don't factor in things like prescription drugs and food prices and housing prices, in particular the health expense costs that are huge for seniors. And there needs to be a separate cost of living adjustment calculated based on what seniors use, not on what teenagers use. We need to be doing that. Yeah, excellent point, Rob. Thank you for the call. Michael in Winter Haven, Florida. Hey, Michael, what's on your mind today? Yes, Tom. Uh, in 1972, I, I voted in my first presidential election. I was one of, as I jokingly say, three people who voted for McGovern. Right. Wasn't he very... I looked at him, I remember back then... I looked at him as very progressive, uh, especially toward the Vietnam War. But I, th I thought he had other. Well, he was he was in favor of going back to LBJ's policies, but his main selling point was that he was against the Vietnam War. McGovern got wiped out because he was a he was a lousy campaigner. He was a poor candidate. And Nixon in 72 said he had a secret plan to end the Vietnam War. And he promised everybody that within a year, the Vietnam War would be over, that he just wasn't going to do it just before the election, because that would look like it was just electioneering and all this kind of stuff. And people believed him. And the media, you know, amplified that message. But, you know, Nixon knew that if he ran against Ed Muskie, who was the leading candidate at about this stage in the primaries, Nixon knew that if he ran against Ed Muskie, he would lose. That's what, that's what all his internal polling showed. You know, we now have the records on this stuff. And so he sent right. Chuck Colson to New Hampshire to get Ed Muskie out of the race. Maybe it was in Maine. Muskie was the senator for Maine. But I think this happened in New Hampshire. And, you know, the story is that Chuck Colson put LSD in his coffee. Now, I, 
I think Colson has come out and said, I didn't put LSD in his coffee, but I did go there to help take him down. And, uh, you know, and they, and they were, they launched this attack, not on Muskie, but on Muskie's wife in order to provoke Muskie. He's given this speech in the snow and he starts crying about his wife. Now he gets really, really upset about this attack on her, which was exactly what they wanted. So they knocked Muskie out in the primary so that they could go against McGovern because they knew that McGovern was a weak candidate. He was not a strong campaigner. So that was and Eagle didn't help, didn't help either. Oh, and Eagleton, yeah, Eagleton thing. yeah. His his first vice presidential pick, you know, McGovern's was a guy who it came out in the middle of the campaign had had electroshock therapy for depression, and you know, and this was around the time that the movie Cuckoo's Nest came out. So uh, it just you know, that was the end of that. McGovern didn't lose because he was a progressive. He lost because Nixon ran a good campaign and because Nixon was lying and and because because of a whole bunch of other factors. It wasn't being a progressive as much as, you know, so many institutional Democrats will say, oh, it's because he was a progressive. It wasn't. Thank you, Michael. Joy in North Fork Valley, Colorado. Hey, Joy, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Well, regarding parties, political parties, yeah. Yeah, Republican, Democrat, Independent, Green. I would always register as a Green, but then I would not be allowed to vote in the primary, in the Democratic primary. And so I would have to turn back and re-register as a Democrat in order to be able to vote in the primary. Right, because you live in in Colorado, which is a closed primary state. Actually, I'm talking about New York and California. Okay. Yeah, um, I don't. I, I don't. I just assumed Colorado was because that's where you're calling from, and you, you're talking about personal experience. But, but yeah, personally, I think we should get rid of parties, <laughs> and then people would have to actually have to pay attention to what the people running believe and say and do. Yeah. Instead of just saying, "Oh, I'm a Republican. Oh, I believe this. Oh, I'm a Democrat. I, you know, therefore, I think." Uh, or I don't, (laughs) if we would have to actually think for ourselves and listen, maybe we would have a better class of candidates uh, running. Well, James Madison completely agreed with you. I mean, you read Federalist Number 10. This was published in the summer of 1787 or 1788. And Federalist Number 10 is a a whole rant about factions and political parties, basically saying, don't do it. But then, of course, you know, within 15 years after that, James Madison had become a Democratic Republican. <laughs> he was he right. joined the, what is the today the Democratic Party. So uh, I understand your sentiment. I, the, I think that the main thing that we need to do is reduce the power that political parties have over our political system. And you do that with ranked choice voting, with instant yeah. runoff uh, voting. And that yeah. way you yeah. can you can have a whole spectrum of, of people from a variety of political parties competing in elections. And it's right. one of the reasons why both the Republican and Democratic Party have been fighting it. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, wherever it's gone into place, over 300 communities now in the United States, it's been championed by third parties, typically the Green Party, or by independents. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then we actually have the hope of a voice. If, uh, yeah, I've been advocating for that for many, many years. And of course, if we had had that, then. then Ralph Nader might have been president. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I doubt Ralph would have got enough votes to be president, but he would have had yeah, but, a large enough but, presence because Ralph was the standard bearer for the Green Party at that time. He might have picked up House seats. He might have picked up Senate seats. Exactly. He might have picked up a lot of local seats. Ranked choice voting is a good thing. Joy, th- thank yeah. you very much for the call. It's good to hear from you. Kathy in Tacoma, Washington. Hey, Kathy, what's up? 
I picked up the phone when you uh, were asking for Democrats that, well, that I guess former Democrats, you know, that have switched. So I'm now, I would say, a Democratic Socialist, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I knocked doors in 2016 for Hillary. And, you know, I was then subsequently after that told by people that were actually delegates what actually happened at the convention, you know. But um, and so that and, and policy as well and, and just, uh, you know, a focus on the people that are really hurting. Um, and we have two blocks away from here, 100 people sleeping in tents right in front of Tacoma Housing Authority. Wow. Uh, and it was 20, 25 degrees. To, yeah. Um, but great <laughs> citizens are coming out and bringing food and things like that. But this city needs to do something different. And instead they keep just, you know, um, this amazing number of new, almost every meeting, two or three new apartment complexes, you know, that are at least $1,000 a month. And nobody can afford that. And even people working uh, minimum wage can't. So I, but the real reason is greenwashing of the Democrats. I'm very concerned about climate, you know, with this LNG plant here and the fracking and everything, which I think is causing, you know, this accelerated thing. But again, because of all the censorship and the ownership of the media and the politicians by the fossil fuel industry, you know, uh, none of this is getting out. Yeah. And it's just um, we the global youth climate strike, I hope, is a time when it's mass action. That's December the 6th. Um, but in Tacoma, that'll be at the Tofferson Square across from the Tacoma Art Museum at mm-hmm. noon on December the 6th. And we also need people to come to the um, city council meeting on uh, the 10th to stand with the the um, Sunrise Movement who are demanding that the city declare a climate emergency. And that uh, request is still going on, um, you know, um, from um, demanding uh, the protectors for the Sailor Sea and allied with all the major gr- uh, environmental groups have been demanding that. That's have great. been occupying that's, in uh, that's great. Olympia yeah. and, uh, yeah. and demanding, and, you know, that Governor Inslee declare a climate emergency. And we need more of that, Kathy. Thank you very much for the call. Nate and his partner were out for Thanksgiving and feeding the homeless. Franklin Roosevelt in 1944 proposed to end homelessness in the United States, just to end it. His second Bill of Rights proposal, and of course he died later that year, and uh, or early the next year, I forget which, within a year he was dead, but with his second Bill of Rights proposal, he said that housing should be a right, not a privilege in the United States. In other words, something that is guaranteed by the government rather than something that you just get out there in the free market. And to this day, I'm not hearing Democrats say that that should be the case. LBJ believed that. It was a big part of the great society. He put into place legislation that gave low-income people access to inexpensive housing and built a lot of of housing for people. Now, you know, you could argue that it wasn't done the best way possible, but a lot of homelessness was alleviated during that time. We need to go back to those values. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. I mean, we can have new and creative ways to act them out, but, you know, let's outlaw homelessness or let's end homelessness in the United States. Starting. Adam in Chicago. Hey, Adam, what's up? Hey, Tom, it's good to talk to you. Finally, uh, been a long time listener. Thank you. Um, I'm calling because um, I've been listening to you talk about the uh, Democrats missing the mark in the 90s. I think they're doing it again. I feel as though rural America is afraid right now. None of the solutions that the Democrats are proposing are speaking directly to rural America. 
that's where the Republicans come in and they start playing off of that fear. And they start getting them to vote, even though they're lying to them consistently. I think um, what rural America is missing is, you know, the economy shifted from a manufacturing base to more of a service-based economy. And they kind of just got left behind. I think the Democrats should kind of focus on how do we get the rural America back in the fold and use narratives such as when rural America fails, America in general fails. And maybe a, perhaps a way of doing that would be introducing infrastructure bills um, and talking about how we can reintroduce rural America into the modern economy. I think a starting point for that, Adam, would be an internet equivalent of the REA and RTA, the Rural Electrification and the Rural Telephony Administrations, that because it was not profitable for electric companies or phone companies to run their service out into remote rural areas, the, the federal government stepped in and, and picked up the bill. Uh, we should be doing the same thing for you know high-speed internet as a starting point. Although the internet companies will fight that tooth and nail, but uh, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Adam. Thank you for the call, Christian in Astoria, Oregon. Hey, Christian, what's on your mind today? Yes, um, you were asking about the um, uh, reasons why a lot of us had left the Democratic Party voting, um, and I'm a registered independent. I have been for a number of years. Well, and now. what would bring um, you back to the party is my big question. I'm hard pressed on that, but I, I'm thinking I'm I'm wanting Tulsi Gabbard actually from what I've seen so far, but the main thing is to be not bought off and to consider our constitution um, to, as far as the way it was originally intended. Um, I understand about the second amendment and all that needs, needs to be amended again um, and things like that. But um, as far as our common defense, but not to be overbearing about war and to be um, just bringing back the blue collar core that used to be that kept people like black folks and white folks and you know spanish folks uh where there was like real industry i don't want there to be the more we make the more they take yeah well so, and that's um it, it's more about a I'm, I'm more of a kind of a centrist um i have conservative as well as liberal uh as I, a lot of people do and um i care deeply about this country because of our role for the rest of the planet um i don't have kids but um, I care about my nieces and my nephew, and I don't want there to be a billion-dollar deficit for them to have to pay for. Well, they're not so, going to have to pay for it. Governments are not households. But, uh, you, know, I, true. I, you know, I get your point, Christian. Thank you. The call Morris in Long Beach, California, listening on KPFK. Hey, Morris, what's up? Hey, good morning, Professor. Uh, listen, here's what we're going to do. We're going to eliminate the middleman. We're going to transfer uh, over $1.5 trillion in wealth overnight. All we're going to do is open the door to health care protections. You get rid of these health care companies, what is it, $600 billion a year plus the loss of uh, the wealth that people have? You can do that overnight. The first thing that we need to do when we get in there is health care protection. Only the United States and Poland. Is, is acting rogue like this. Everybody else got this. This is basic. I'm not trying to get you no yacht or Cadillac. I'm just talking about basic stuff, okay? Open the door to health care protection. That's a transfer of $1.5 trillion. Now, the problem we got here, Professor, is the, 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 bill, the billionaires. They hoard money. The money's collecting dust. Now, when you get the money down to the middle class, we're consumers. We spend the money. We get things circulating, you see? And there's no money circulating no more. If you go back to the time when Dwight Eisenhower was the president, if you went back to that tax code right there, we wouldn't have these kind of problems because yep. we wouldn't have no billionaire class. Yep. It ought to be illegal to have that kind of money. Some of these guys got more money than government. What are they going to do with it? They can't spend it in a lifetime. If I sound crazy, I'm crazy. They kids can't spend it in a lifetime either. What's behind all of that? 
You see, he's opening the door to health care protection. That's a $1.5 trillion uh, transfer to the middle class and lower. And that'll be the start. Then we can go from there right. with taxes. And, and fund it with a, with a, with, by raising income tax levels and, and also having rich people pay a tax on their wealth, just like you know, middle class people do right now, at least middle class homeowners. But, uh, Professor, I saw a guy on TV. I don't expect nobody within the sound of my voice to believe this. I saw a billionaire on television, crying tears because he had to make a contribution to humanity. I couldn't believe it. Are you talking about the guy who was, who was freaked out about Elizabeth Warren maybe becoming president? Because there was uh, a billionaire a who cried about that, too, you know? I could, I could, I'm, I'm watching this man cry tears because he's got to make a contribution to humanity. I couldn't believe it. Where are we? Oh, you're talking about his, yeah, his taxes going up, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're not paying no. We're just growing up. They're not paying no. You paying taxes? They're not paying no taxes. All we got yeah. to do is go back to Dwight Eisenhower's era, and we went. I used to have a business. Go back to Dwight Eisenhower's era and how they ran taxes that way. You remember when you got the ninety-one percent? If you take that money and give it to the government, or you take that ninety-one dollars and invest it back into your business, get money circulating right on. You can't hoard it, right? We go back to that system, and we're good to go. And what did Eisenhower do with that money? He built schools all across America. He built hospitals all across America. He built the interstate highway system, which which you know, uh, just put the, the whole economy on, uh, you know, on a healthy growth spurt. It wasn't one of these, uh, you know, sugar highs like you get from tax cuts. It was an actual infrastructure thing. And then what he set up was Jack Kennedy coming along right after, you know, who was the next president after Eisenhower saying, and by the way, we're going to take some of that money from that 91% top tax on, on the very, very rich, and we're going to put a man on the moon. And everybody was like, he's crazy. He can't do that. And sure enough, 10 years later, we put a man on the moon. And, and look at America working, my brother. Look at America yeah. when we want to be right. Talk to you sir. Yeah, thank you, Morris. And Morris, Morris is absolutely right about the statistics, by the way. Um, when the top tax rate on individuals was 91%, the tax on corporations was actually enforced. One-third, during the Eisenhower administration in the 1950s, one-third of all the money that runs government came from corporate taxes. One-third of it. And the rest of it came, and, and, and this is one of the reasons why tax rates were actually quite low on working people in the 1950s. Because the billionaires were, I mean, they were called billionaires then, they were called centimillionaires. They were people worth hundreds of millions of dollars. We've had inflation. But basically, the billionaire class, they were paying a very, very high tax rate, and corporations were paying one-third of the cost to government. And look at what government was doing. We built hundreds of thousands of schools and hospitals and miles of road and put a man on the moon. With all the problems unfolding for the Fed and central banks, you may be asking some very important questions. How close are we to the next economic collapse? What will it look like just before the crash? And how can I protect my investments and my retirement? There are a few people better suited to answer these questions than ITM Trading's chief market analyst, Lynette Zhang. Her fact-based research on the markets, currencies, and economy is second to none, and her videos have prepared people for almost every major downfall in the U.S. economy this year. If you haven't heard of Lynette Zhang and ITM Trading, I highly recommend looking them up. They're pioneers in economic education, and they're experts at creating strategies to protect you against the next inevitable crisis. If you're looking to protect your wealth or just hedge against the most volatile economy since 2007, go to youtube.com slash itmtrading. I recommend learning as much as you can before the next crisis hits so you can make the most educated choices while there's still time. That's youtube.com slash itmtrading. Hi, for the Tom Hartman University Book Club today, we're reading from The Crash of 2016. 
which might happen, we'll see, but it's coming. This is from chapter five. Chapter five is titled, Reagan Kidnapped the Jetsons. In a 1966 article, Time Magazine looked toward the future and what the rise of automation would mean for average working Americans. It concluded, quote, by 2000, the machines will be producing so much that everyone in the U.S. will, in effect, be independently wealthy. With government benefits, even non-working families will have, by one estimate, an annual income of thirty dollars to $40,000. How to use leisure meaningfully will be a major problem, end of quote. And that was thirty dollars to $40,000 in 1966 dollars, which would roughly be $199,000 to $260,000 in 2010 dollars. Ask anybody who was a teenager or older in the 1960s, this was a big sales pitch for automation and the coming computer age. There was even a cartoon show about it, The Jetsons. And everybody looked forward to the day when increased productivity from robots, computers, and automation would translate into fewer hours worked or more pay or both for every American worker. And there was good logic behind the idea. The premise was simple. With better technology, companies would become more efficient. They'd be able to make more things in less time. Revenues would skyrocket, and, and Americans would bring home higher and higher paychecks, all the while working fewer and fewer hours. So by the year 2000, according to Time magazine in 1966, we would enter what was then referred to as the leisure society. Futurists speculated that the biggest problem facing America in that Jetsons future of the year 2000 would be just how the heck everyone would use all their extra leisure time. And, of course, there were also those who worried about what kind of degeneracy would emerge when a nation has lots of money and free time on its hands. Neither happened, and it didn't happen, because Ronald Reagan stole the leisure society from us and handed it over to the economic royalists. In 1981, the royalists went right to work, taking down that first pillar on which FDR rebuilt the American middle class, progressive taxation. Taking advantage of the oil shock crisis, neoliberal shock troopers immediately ushered through a revolutionary change in the tax code with the Economic Recovery Act of 1981. The first major piece of legislation signed by Reagan has slashed the top marginal income tax rate from 70% to 50%, cutting estate taxes for wealthy businesses and slashing capital gains and corporate profit taxes. Reagan succeeded a few years later in dropping the top income tax rate even more to 28%, where it hadn't been since the Great Depression. It was the second largest tax cut in history, and it was nearly identical to the largest tax cut ever, Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon's in the 1920s, the one that created the bubble known as the Roaring Twenties, which eventually burst in 1929. The great forgetting had certainly arrived. The economic mistakes of the 1920s were coming back around. And again, the influx of all this hot money in the market coupled with a robust deregulation agenda throughout the 1980s and 90s, would trigger a series of painful financial panics. The reason why the Leisure Society could be imagined by Time magazine is because ever since 1900, working people's wages tracked evenly with working people's productivity. So as productivity can continue to rise, which was likely due to increased automation and better technology, so too would everyone's wages. And the glue holding this logic together was the current top marginal income tax rate. In 1966, when the Time article was written, the top marginal income tax rate was 70%. And what that effectively did was encourage CEOs to keep more money in their businesses, to invest in new technology, to pay their workers more, to hire new workers and expand. After all, what's the point of sucking millions and millions of dollars out of your business if it's going to be taxed at 70%? 
According to this line of reasoning, if businesses were to suddenly become more profitable and efficient thanks to automation, then that money would flow throughout the businesses, raising everyone's standard of living, increasing everyone's leisure time. But when Reagan top dropped that top tax rate down to 28%, everything changed, as you can see in this graph. Now, as businesses became more profitable, there was a far greater incentive for CEOs to pull those profits out of the company and pocket them because they were suddenly paying an incredibly low tax rate. And that's exactly what they did. All those new profits, thanks to automation, that were supposed to go to everyone, giving us all higher paychecks and more time off, instead went to the top, to the economic royalists. Suddenly, the symmetry in the productivity wages chart broke down. Productivity continued increasing because technology continued improving, but wages stayed flat. And again, since higher and higher profits could be sucked out of the company and taxed at lower and lower levels, there was no incentive to reduce the number of hours everyone worked. In the 1950s, before that Time Magazine article predicted the leisure society, uh, before that article was written, the average American working in manufacturing put in about 42 hours of work a week. Today, the average American working in manufacturing puts in about 40 hours a week. This means that despite the fact that productivity has increased 400% since 1950, Americans are working on average only two fewer hours a week. If productivity is four times higher than in 1950, then Americans should be able to work four times less, or just 10 hours a week, to afford the same 1950s lifestyle when a family of four could get by on just one paycheck, own a home, own a car, put their kids through school, take a vacation every now and then, and retire comfortably. But all that was wiped out by Reaganomics and Ronald Reagan. And that's just the beginning of the setup for the crash. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Randy in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Hey, Randy, what's on your mind today? Hey, how you doing? I just found your show on YouTube. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah, we're here every day. I guess I, guess, uh, I want to change the subject a little bit. And uh, this is a story that's not hitting the news or getting any traction, is that the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management, is rounding up our wild horses and burros for cattle ranchers to graze on our private lands. Of course, the wild horses have been protected since 1971. And basically, the BLM is rounding them up. Yeah, this has been going on for a them while, to slaughter. Randy. For low-income food in China and Canada. Yeah, we had we had uh, T Boone Pickens' uh, ex-wife on the program. She's been a, uh, and this was like four or five years ago. She's been an outspoken advocate for those horses, and and uh, you know apparently it's been going on for some time. And and there's there's quite a bit of activism about it and around it, and you can find it all on the internet. Thomas in Lima, Ohio. Hey, Thomas, what's on your mind? So you have a new nickname for wondered, Donald Trump. Oh, do I have that right? Yeah, I do. Okay. Donald seems to hand out nicknames right and left, and I got a good one for him. Okay. Disappointing Donald. Disappointing Donald. Disappoints everybody he knows. Disappointed yeah. his father. Disappointed every wife he's had. Uh -huh. And he's definitely disappointed every American that I know. Yeah. Well, so, that, that sounds like a good I one. I think we can make it stick because I know it'll really infuriate that man. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think you're right, <laughs> Thomas. A good suggestion. Thank you, uh, Marie in Oak Creek, Colorado. Hey, Marie. Bill Barr decided it didn't matter what he did 
and what his legacy would be in history because he would be dead. Yes, he said that right out uh, loud. He'll be he'll be in G- yeah. he'll be with Jesus in heaven and so he doesn't care what we think of him and so he's just going to do whatever he wants to do. Now, what form of Christianity is that? Because if he thinks he's going to be in heaven with Jesus, there is a last judgment in Christianity. There is, yes. Matthew 25, <laughs> Jesus tells the story. Absolutely. And, and uh, so it, you know, and, and one of his things is, you didn't visit me in prison, so off you go to Hades, yes. you know. And Bill Barr uh, overseeing a, a justice department that's, that's ratifying putting children in, in cages, 70,000 children. Since, since the beginning of the Trump administration yes. separated from their families. It's, it's, Sounds to me like he, if, if that's the brand of Christianity he espouses, he has a lot to worry about. I Dick Cheney said the same so. thing. George W. said the same thing. I know, I know. These, these guys, which, which tells me that they actually don't believe their own religion. Because they're, these are not I, stupid I people. These, these, these guys are smart and cynical. And what they're doing is they're, they play religion when it's to their advantage to bring in the rubes and get the votes. And, and then, you know, they, they live their lives by, you know, whatever standard they're living their lives by. It's, it's pretty astonishing. Marie, thank you for the call. So would you like to watch the Tom Hartman program? All three hours of our program, anytime you'd like. Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Tom Hartman, T-H-O-M-H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, all run together. And you become a supporter of the program through Patreon. You have access to the full three-hour show anytime you want and special content that we put up every single week that is unique specifically to our Patreon page. So check it out, Patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. Thank you. Tom Hartman here with you and Dan in Chicago. Hey, Dan, what's up? To what you were talking about when you were talking about our president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, that was a very special time in our history. And Roosevelt was a special person, as was Lincoln, was fit for his time. Uh, What the Republicans did not have during that time was... 40 years of Reagan policies and 20 years of Fox News. You're right. Uh, to put the public that listens to Fox News and who and who would vote for the Reagan ilk under a spell. Uh, their faculties for critical thinking have been so impaired by a generation of lies that even when truth and their own demise is staring them in the face, too many of them fail to see it. Uh, uh, What the Republicans have done with this Fox News thing, this is their seminal moment, uh, in in my opinion. This is the moment that they're going all in. It's worked for 20 years. We have to go for for, for the jugular now. Uh, that's that's just my opinion, and they're doing it using their own. Republicans have a bad habit of failing character tests of their generation. Trump is the valedictorian of the small class of dumb presidents, and the rest of the class are idiots who voted for him and think that he's doing a great job. God bless you, Tom. You have a good day. Thank you, Dan. Good to hear from you. I just wanted to restate that the Iowa caucus is two months from today. It's very close. The Iowa caucus is the first winnowing of the field. 
I think it's unfortunate that the first winnowing of the field is in a state that doesn't represent America demographically. It doesn't have a major city in it. It doesn't have a minority population that is representative of the population in the United States. It's mostly a white state. It's what we have right now. I think that you know Democrats should give serious consideration to changing that and going to states that are more representative of the United States for their early states than New Hampshire and Iowa. But Iowa and New Hampshire are going to be the first two. We're just two months, literally from today, out from that. And the poll, this is the CBS slash YouGov poll. It's 22% each for Sanders and Biden and 21% for Buttigieg and 18% for Warren. Basically a dead heat, a tie between Sanders, Biden, Buttigieg and Warren. And that's, that's good. That tells me that people are starting to, A, focus on who they're going to support and what their issues are. And I think all of that is like, you know, really, really important stuff. The Montana Democrats, I, I just want to, this, this story is just amazing. Joe McCarter wrote this up for Daily Kos. She says, who needs Republicans when you have Democrats acting like this? Montana State Representative Kathy Kelker and State Senator Jen Gross, both Democrats, are admitting that recent anti-Medicare for All columns published under their names were actually written largely by lobbyists. And the Washington Post actually is who broke this story. They, uh, they got emails exchanged between state lawmakers and this uh, industry-funded group called Partnership for America's Healthcare Future. Partnership for America's Healthcare Future is actually a partnership of companies involved in the healthcare business, principally insurance companies, who are not planning for your future or my future. They're planning for their future. In other words, it's the partnership for America to continue bleeding money into the health insurance industry. And an industry lobbyist, a guy by the name of John McDonald, reached out to the state lawmakers to have them write opinion columns that, quote, warned against the dangers of Medicare for all and other government involvement in health care. And in addition to those two Montana Democrats, a Republican Ohio State Senator, Steve Huffman, did this. He published an op-ed written with a little help from another industry lobbyist uh, who was named Kathleen DeLand. And the, the columns, all of them, all of these columns, every single one of them, failed to note that the state legislator whose name is at the end of them was not the person who wrote them, that they were in fact written by lobbyists. And I blame the Supreme Court on all this. This is, this is why I wrote this book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. They literally betrayed us in the 70s when they said that it's okay for politicians to be owned by billionaires or by private corporations. And then they doubled down on that in 2010 with Citizens United, and then they tripled down on it with the McConnell decision uh, just a year or two ago. This is, this is terrible, terrible stuff. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Go ahead, Carl. I'm listening. Talk dirty to me.
staph, salmonella, E. coli, influenza. Wait, not that kind of dirty. Do you realize you just took me to the toilet and kept wiping in between tweets? No wonder one in six phones contain fecal matter. Gross. Whatever your hands touch, I touch. I'm covered in filth. It's enough to make both of us sick. Please, can you get me a phone soap? Phone soap? Phone soap safely kills 99.99% of all those germs with clinically proven UV light. It won't damage my screen like liquids or chemicals. Good, because you're all I've got. That's so sweet, Carl. Phone soap is trusted and used by healthcare professionals and hospitals. It fits phones of all sizes. Phone soap makes the perfect holiday gift. Go to phonesoap.com, use code TOM to save 20% off and receive free shipping. That's phonesoap.com, use code TOM. Go to phonesoap.com and use code THOM to save 20% off today. 